Welcome to the Issues on Appeal podcast. I'm your host, Dwayne Diker. This is episode 13, Evaluating PCA. Thanks for joining me. This week's show is again sponsored by Commercial Surety Bond Agency, the nation's leading surety agency specializing in supersedious bonds. More about CSBA later in the show. Our topic this week is about how to evaluate post-judgment motions after a per curiam affirmance. My guest is Deneen Wasilek, a board-certified appellate attorney and founder of DPW Legal in Tampa, Florida. After my interview, stay tuned for some extra bonus content this week. My discussion with Deneen is coming up next. Deneen Wasilek. Thank you for coming back to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Dwayne. So you're actually the first sort of repeat guest. Um, I've had uh, Jared Krukar, who works with you, has been on the show twice, but uh, sort of once as a guest host. So you're the first repeat guest. Well, so thank you. I'm very honored for that. I think Jared <laughs> likes to say that he, was, he, was, he came back twice first. <laughs> oh, and I should mention that you are with DPW Legal in Tampa. You're a board-certified appellate specialist, and you're a board-certified intellectual property lawyer. Correct. Do you split your time evenly between appeals and intellectual property? About 50-50 with some overlap, and that's when I'm most happy is when the I, when it's an IP-related appeal or appellate issue. Oh, yeah, that really hits the sweet spot for you, right? Absolutely. <laughs> awesome. Well, at one point you and I were talking, and you had mentioned that you – have sort of a process for evaluating um, cases when you get a PCA decision. And in fact, I think you sometimes provide like sort of second opinion consulting on PCAs. And I think our audience knows what a PCA is, but let's just talk about it briefly. Um, sometimes the, the Florida courts, when they affirm a case, they affirm it in a summary fashion. And usually it's three words, per curiam affirmed. Uh, it's a part of the it's part of the process, and there's a whole bunch written about it because it can be very frustrating to to litigants to get no explanation as to why they have lost. But uh, the fact is, it's it's pretty prevalent, isn't it? It is. I I did some research in preparation for this, and around two thirds of decisions are decided by PCA. Um, and so, I guess in Florida, we're really used to using that terminology and phrase. Um, but I realized a couple years ago that it, you know outside of Florida, people don't recognize that term so much. And so one of the things that I've done, I think why I have sort of developed um, a, a sort of line of business of doing these kinds of PCA reviews is because I finally sat down and wrote a blog post explaining what a PCA is. Um, and I use that blog post uh, – I actually send it to my clients when we get a PCA to give them a further explanation of what it is and what it means um, right away. Instead of say, doing the same explanation over and over again, I have an email that includes here, read this article we wrote that explains why this works. Um, that's at the Florida floridaappellate.com blog. And uh, if you want that particular one, I got you a nice short link for it. It's bit.ly slash Florida PCA that explains... Um, what a PCA is exactly. Great. And we will link to that in the show notes if people are driving and <laughs> Beautiful. Can't, can't remember. And our mission here today is not to be particularly critical of the PCA, right? I mean, we recognize that uh, there is a huge caseload in the Florida courts. There, the budget is not what any of us probably would hope that it could be. And there's just a practical reality that they can't write opinions. Uh, I suppose some appellate courts do, 
I suppose that they're also not as busy as our appellate courts. And so it is it is a mechanism that, that has a place, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't see it changing in Florida anytime in the near future. So we just need to learn to live with it and learn to help our clients live with it, which I think is the harder part. So it used to be when you got a PCA opinion, you kind of knew when you went to the mailbox because at least in the second district, you know, not that long ago, they would mail you uh, the opinion and you would get the really thin envelope and that would be a bad sign, right? Right. <laughs> but now uh, we get notices electronically or if we're really, if we're really looking, uh, we can look when opinions are posted online. So things, we don't look for that thin envelope anymore, but... When that day comes and the and the PCA comes in, uh, there's there are things that you can do. So, talk to us a little bit about how do you evaluate what the options are when a PCA comes in. Sure. Well, I mean, I think you just need to hook it on the um, the rules that are in place for Supreme Court jurisdiction, right? Because the only the only reason that you can get a PCA turned into an opinion is if there is a basis for Florida's Supreme Court jurisdiction. And a lot of clients who are not very familiar with the legal process, they just, oh, well, I want to take this to the Supreme Court. I lost and I want to go to the Supreme Court. And so I have found that having a system for explaining to those people you know, what can and cannot go to the Florida Supreme Court and why is very, very helpful. Um, and we, um, you know, we have kind of a standard memo that explains what the appeal as of right to the Florida Supreme Court is, which almost never applies in the kinds of cases that I have, but sort of check it out and, and give them that checklist to see these bases don't apply to you. And then, then sort of the next one is these the, the discretionary review. What are the bases for a discretionary review? And we, you know, list them all out and just answer the question, you know, would a written opinion expressly declare valid a state statute? No, there's no issue of a state statute's mm-hmm. validity here. Um, and just go through and answer the questions piece by piece um, and 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 let them know what's going on. Now, if we've handled the appeal, we have a pretty good handle on, you know, whether there's going to be anything in there. We'll, you know, if we think there's an issue, we'll have tried to set it up already um, and, you know, perhaps ask for certification, for example, which we'll talk about a little bit more. Um, If we haven't handled the appeal, then it's a little bit of a different process to figure out if there's a place for that. Takes a little bit more time. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the big thing is, you know, because I have that blog post out there explaining what a PCA is, I get a lot of calls from people saying, what can I do? You you know, someone else handled my appeal, but what can I do? Or, you know, even worse, they did their appeal pro se, but now they want to know what they, what they can do. Um, and at first I was like, well, probably nothing. And so I'm not even going to bother trying. Um, but eventually I sort of came around to the notion that if someone really wants the time and effort of a full explanation and analysis, um, as long as I'm very honest with them, very upfront, that you need to understand the answer is most likely to be, to be there's nothing we can do, and I very much disclose that. Um, you know, I think it's important to make people feel like they're getting due process in the whole system, and so if that's what it takes to make them feel like they've gotten full due process because they've gotten their PCA, I'm happy to do it with that, you know, strong caveat in the front end. You know, and I tell them, look, there, it is extraordinarily rare to get any sort of review on a PCA. It is extraordinarily rare to convince the courts to, you know, change their mind and write a written opinion when there's not. You know, I don't, 
I'm not a big fan of filing a motion for rehearing or rehearing in bank as a matter of course. I don't really file it unless I really think I can win it, which is why I've won about half of the ones that I filed, which I think is a pretty high percentage, but it's because I don't file very many. <laughs> because right. I, you know, I am not going to waste the court's time. So when I explain all of these things to people and they still want to do it, then we go through our, our process. And it's certainly gotten a lot easier now because you can um, – you can usually just pull the briefs directly from EDCA just as being a lawyer, even if you're not the lawyer on on the file anymore. And so we start with that. We read and analyze the briefs and look, you know, with this checklist in front of us of what the bases for rehearing and having a written opinion would be. Um, and, you know, the, the, the three that tend to be the most likely candidates, at least, are what we're looking for the most, and that mm-hmm. is, you know, expressly and directly conflict with the decision of another district court of appeal or the Supreme Court on the same question of law. So we're going to be looking pretty carefully at the case law cited in the briefs to see if there's something so spot on that we can make that argument. Because um, let me just start, stop yeah. you a minute. Because when the court talks about express and direct conflict, they're pretty mm-hmm. serious about both of those things. Yes, absolutely. And just, you know, the facts need to be pretty on all fours for it to be that express and direct. Um, and I think you can be sort of on three and a half legs and make the argument, but right. know that you're probably not going to get there. So, um, so yeah, so that's one of the things that we – but we'll look at that pretty carefully. And so, um, you know, that's one of the one of the times when looking to see if there are – you know, citations to cases outside of the, this particular DCA are there and really reading them carefully with an eye toward this issue, which, I mean, you would think and hope that if if briefs, if cases were cited, that they were at least going to be persuasive on an issue. But we're going to look a little bit more closely at how close the facts are in this situation to see if we can make that argument and, you know, argue to the to the court that, hey, if you wrote an opinion, you'd have to admit that this is a conflict. Right. Okay. Um, and what else? Well, and then so, you know, pass upon a question certified to be of great public importance. Now, obviously, they haven't certified it yet, but is there something in here that we can make the argument that they should and and why? And so what is the important issue here? Um, and, you know, and we're looking both on substantive law and on procedural law because sometimes the procedural questions are some of the most important um, but again, it depends a lot on what and how was argued and whether there's something that we can sort of fashion into that issue of great public importance. Um, and it's rare, again, but you know that's what we're looking for. This is one of the ones that I have the most trouble uh, explaining to clients because everybody feels like their appeal is of exceptional importance, right? Right. Um, not only because, in part because it's personal and because they can't remove themselves from that, but they always want to look at a very big picture and say, well, you know, if if my insurance contract is being interpreted wrongly, then that affects millions of people in Florida who have insurance policies. And that's not really, that's not necessarily what the court is looking for in exceptional importance. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, you know, closer than, you know, you you can sort of extrapolate in some ways for for almost every case, um, but you know what I'm looking for when I'm advising clients is you know something that's a a policy issue um, or something that is a procedural issue that's going to affect the course of many cases. I mean that's what I'm usually thinking about when I'm looking at those issues. Now, 
you know, misinterpretation of an insurance contract that does, you know, affect many, many people, especially if it's a standard contract that's being used used by more than one insurer, that's starting to get big enough that maybe mm-hmm. it is an issue of great public importance. And you certainly you can make that pitch um, if it makes sense to do so. But then, you know, the next part of the analysis is, is this the case to make that pitch? Well, that's right. Right? That's because, right. you know, there may be... If this if this issue is coming up again and again, maybe the better course of action would be to not try and get the court to write an opinion in this case where maybe there were other issues of preservation or whatever. But instead, you know this is going to come up again and again. Come up with a strategy on how to set it up at the trial court stage for a better appeal so you can really make that pitch in the next case. Um, and so that's that's sort of a very big picture strategy issue when you're something like an insurer who's a you know frequent litigant um, and has the same issues coming up again and again. Like you have to frame the right case for that if you want to really you know get a decision that makes sense for you. Like all these bases, there's a fine line between something that you can – meet the requirements so that you're not in violation of the rules, right? right? But there's a distinction between that and something that has a good chance of success, I guess. Right. And and so and I always in my in my engagements for any appeal, but especially if I'm doing the, this one-off, you know, PCA review, I say outright I will not file a document in the court unless I feel comfortable signing the certifications that are required by the rule that say that this is a good case. And so, you know, when I'm when I am the attorney for the appeal itself, it says that. And so we do that analysis, but we won't file the motion for rehearing unless we are, you know, I am I feel very confident that I'm, you know, that I'm not gonna be laughed at when I signed that certification. Um, and then when we're doing these PCA reviews, you know, we go just a step further. And, and in, the, in the engagement, it says, you understand and acknowledge that the most likely outcome of this review is there is nothing we can file on your behalf to get relief at this stage because of the rarity of getting a court to write an opinion. But we're going to give you the analysis anyway. Um, I mean, I say it orally, I say it in writing, um, and for the most part, people are just happy to have someone looked at it very carefully and to see, you know, all of this sounds like a lot of gobbledygook, I think, to a lot of non-lawyers, and I tend to do more appeals with consumers a lot of the time as opposed to businesses for some of my appeals, and so particularly for people who are not frequent litigants and are not sophisticated litigants, um, it really helps to give them a better understanding because their first thought when they've lost at the you know, DCA level is, i got to bring this to the Supreme Court, and they really don't understand why that is so difficult to do. And so we really just lay it all out for them to make them understand why. Yeah, I think that lay people and maybe even lawyers from other jurisdictions, like when you're dealing with corporate counsel and stuff, I think people don't really understand what a court of limited jurisdiction or how limited the jurisdiction of the Florida Supreme Court is. Yes. Everybody thinks, you know, I'm going to appeal my case all the way to the Supreme Court. And the answer is usually not. <laughs> yeah, usually not. I mean, so, and we, and I do talk about, you know, appealing to the inter- intermediate appellate court. You get to do that no matter what, but getting to that next level is something that you know the Supreme Court just can't do for every case. And so 
that's really only when they have to be making law and deciding issues that are bigger than your case. Um, and I think that helps them understand it a little better. And I always try, and it sounds like you do too, right, right from your engagement letter, but I always try to impress upon clients at the intermediate level when we're appealing to the District Court of Appeal, like, this, this is your shot. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's, there's a possibility that you have some further review, but chances are really good that this is, this is it. Yeah. You know, so we want to, we don't want to leave anything in reserve. Let's, yeah, let's, absolutely. Let's do it now. And, but then getting back to what you were saying, when you tell people, look, there's a very small chance of review beyond this point, sometimes they want the peace of mind of running that down. Yeah. You know, you say, well, maybe there's a chance. And then you, at the end you say, well, it's a small chance. For some of them, it's worth the peace of mind, right, yeah. to spend the money and get the opinion that, you know, there's a small chance, but your chance is really, really, really small, or, or maybe it's zero because yeah. you have no basis to even state. Yeah, and so you know, so the memo that comes out at the end of the day comes with a recommendation of, you know, often it's, no, we don't think you've even hit any of these, you know, these bases that are in Rule 9.030A2A. I wrote it down, so I wanted to say it. Um, Good, because I would not have remembered that. <laughs> I, had that to, I had to look it up myself, but I have it in my memo, so I have it there. Um, no, you have not hit any of these bases, and so there's nothing we can do. Um, you know, sometimes we can fashion perhaps an issue of great public performance or perhaps um, – perhaps a conflict but again it's 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 so difficult also because you don't know what um what the basis of the decision is and so it's pretty it's a it's a pretty rare thing and you know 90 percent of the time i'm telling people unfortunately this is the end of the line and i know it stinks um i don't know what else to tell you other than we've really you know we've looked at it we've given you that analysis um you know and and that's all we can do If you have a client needing to stay enforcement of a judgment in Florida or any other state or federal court, contact Commercial Surety. They can be reached at www.commercialsurety.com or by phone toll-free at 877-810-5525. Their contact information is always in the show notes. And if you haven't, I would encourage you to go back and listen to Episode 9, Nothing Rhymes with Supersedious. If you really want to understand appellate bonds and how the business works so that you can better explain that and discuss it with your client, I highly recommend you give that episode a listen. I'm thrilled to have a great company like CSBA sponsoring the show. The next time a client needs a supersedious bond, please give them a call. These folks are experts in this area. They'll guide you and your client through the process and give you one less thing to worry about. And, you know, one of the other things that comes up a lot, actually, that we have to talk about is, again, due process, because they're like, oh, well, but due process is a constitutional, it's a federal constitutional issue, and it is, but if it hasn't been raised and set up appropriately as as an issue on appeal, then it's not really going to be a basis to go up, and it's not like a direct interpretation of the Constitution kind of thing. Right. So that's the other one that I have to be very careful to explain to people. Um, and I know it's frustrating for them, but I, but also I think I've come up with some good language to do that so that they, at the end of the day, feel like they have gotten, um, gotten value from the time that's spent. Um, and, you know, and because we have been able to streamline it 
and we know exactly what we're looking for and you can do it pretty I can do it pretty quickly and know um, just from experience and from you know from looking at the case law pretty it doesn't it doesn't take an enormous amount of time to do this analysis it's not like I'm you know writing a whole set of briefs or anything like that right. you know a few hours reading through the you know skimming through the briefs and understand like un, you know maybe like an hour reading through the briefs and skimming through um, and looking at some of the case law just to see and think about, you know, and then maybe I'll spot a preservation issue, for example, and I'll know exactly where that PCA came from mm-hmm. or, you know, those kinds of things. I don't generally have to get into the record for this because it's really based upon what was argued in the briefs to have a sense of what we think the court overlooked. There are times where we do have to get into the record, but that's, you know, if it's, but that's rarer. So, um, you know, we can generally tell from the arguments that were made whether or not we're going to be anywhere close to one of these issues. Right. Now, did we get through all the bases? I forget. Um, I think we did. I mean, the last one that's usually is certified to be in direct conflict with decisions of other district courts of appeal, which is not much different than expressly and directly in conflict, except the court has already recognized it, which is nice. And so, but the analysis is really the same because you could say, hey, you should certify this um, because it is indirect. And so both of these bases would be things that we would cite to say, this is why you should write an opinion. So it's not really many, you know, much different. The other two about expressly construing a provision of a state or federal constitution is usually not available. Expressly declaring valid a state statute is usually not an issue and expressly affecting a class of constitutional state officers is usually not an issue, but we list them all out anyway so they understand that we've looked at everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, how often have you filed a motion requesting a written opinion? Very rarely. I mean, maybe two or three times. Um, ever, and ever successfully? I'm guessing no. No. No, I have not. I don't ever. think very many of those are successful. Yeah. Percentage no, and it's and I think that 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 is part of this process. And you know, I, the the one time that I did it um, that I'm thinking of right now, where we had um, an issue that was a it was a it was an issue of preservation that was important that was bubbling up that there's been several Florida bar articles written about. Um, I felt very good about that one that we were, you know, on on good footing in requesting it and saying, you know, there is direct conflict between this district and that district. And now you're ignoring that issue and just sort of PCA on a preservation issue. And you need to address this issue. But we didn't get anywhere. Yeah, I know. I forget how long ago they changed that rule. It's been a while now. It's, I'm thinking seven or eight years or yeah. something. Yeah. And um Maybe more. I'm very bad at estimating time as I get older. Aren't we all? <laughs> but I, I, I have not. I've heard of just a handful of instances where those motions have been successful, and, and I think that that's understandable because we can't assume that the court is, you know, willy nilly PCA in cases. I mean, I, I think that the judges take their time and they make these decisions, and when they issue a PCA, it's for a reason because yeah. they feel like there's no law to be made there, and. You know, we can't assume that uh, these things are hitting them out of the blue for yeah. the most part. One of the things that I forgot to mention that is really important to do when you're doing this kind of analysis is you're, you know, you're in a short period of time, right? But um, I also, as part of it, look at the cases that have been cited and do some quick research and see if something new came out very recently. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, 
if it's like the day before the opinion, came, you know, within a week of the opinion coming out, I think that the court will give you a pass if you didn't get it to them right away. Right. You know, um, you know, much more further than that, you, it's worth a shot. But I think they're going to be like, well, you know, you had time to give us a supplemental authority. But that really is your best shot to get, uh, you know, some sort of rehearing or, you know, we're looking at rehearing issues, too, as, as well as, um, you know, PCA review. Um, for a written opinion, and and that's really the best shot. So that's a very important analysis to do is to make sure you didn't miss any supplemental authority or maybe something came out within days of the opinion coming out. And so, um, you know, we just, A, we West check everything, but then also do some spot research on various issues to make sure we haven't missed a case that just came out on these issues. We try to keep up on the case law and see what comes out anyway, but, um, but that's, since that is the best shot, um, That's that definitely is, the best shot, yeah. right? Because that is something clearly the court could not have known about at the right. time they issued the opinion. Because it's very clear that it's something the court overlooked, and overlooked is really kind of the task, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's harder to argue that you overlooked arguments that we made. Um, it's much easier to argue, hey, you didn't know that this court came out of your this case came out of your own court two days before you issued this opinion. You just kind of missed it, um, and so you know that is. And I have. I have not personally, but I have known other people who have been successful in getting um, rehearing because of that. So that's a really important analysis to do. Yeah, that's always part of the problem with the PCA and, and moving for rehearing is, you know, overlooked is one of the big bases. And how do you know what the court overlooked when they didn't write an opinion? Right. I mean, that's sort of the fundamental issue. Right. Absolutely. But that one is like, that's, that's a, that's a that good one's one. a good one, yeah. <laughs> you know, and so that's part of the, the sort of the checklist process of doing this analysis. Um, and, you know, and I, I, I do have when I'm when I'm at the top of my game, I do have sort of a paralegal level person do the first check, like do a West check and, you know, pull up and see what what has been cited, if there's anything new since then. But I also do my own spot research as I'm going. Great. And so you had mentioned that sometimes you provide second opinions without any details. Are, are there times when you find that lawyers, maybe even a trial lawyer, have advised clients that they – don't really have a shot at rehearing and you advise that they do? Um, very rare. It's more the other way around. Right? Right. Where they say, oh, you should go for rehearing. I'm like, yeah, I don't really think that you should and here's why. Yeah. Um, just because I think that, um, and at the trial level, I think it is it should be reflexive to seek rehearing because that's a preservation issue potentially. And so I'm glad for that when trial lawyers say, yes, go for rehearing. But appellate rehearing uh, and reconsideration inbound is a very different kind of rehearing than than trial level rehearing. And sometimes we have to be the voice of reason for trial lawyers, right? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, and for clients, you know, I, I try to be very practical of, you know, whether this is going to be good money after bad, given what your what your uphill battle is on this type of relief and what it's going to take to do. And can we even do it with a straight face? And again, that's right. why it goes all the way back to my engagement of we will not seek rehearing unless we believe we can sign the you know the certification um, in a way that we are comfortable doing. Um, and I'm just not going to do it otherwise. So um, you know, I think it's one of those issues where it's really important for, to to not mess with your reputation before the court. And of course, there's always a balance because you want to be a strong advocate for the clients. But 
emphasis on strong. It's not strong right. if um, you know. It's not strong if 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 you're going to get laughed out of court, um, and you know that you're going to get laughed out of court. And so that's the balance, and that's where you know the client relations piece is so important, is to really make them understand this issue. And we found that being a little more explanatory on the front end of this is what it is, this is what it means with the PCA and those kinds of things. And then also if they, you know, if they want us to do a more formal review and give them that memo, we're happy to do it because um, it gives them value to understand the system better, which has a lot of value too. Yeah, I think this is one of the struggles that we all we all face where, you know, I will file post-opinion motions if they are justified under the rules, if I can make the certifications, even if I don't think they're necessarily going to prevail. Right. uh, If the clients are insistent. I mean, because I feel like at that point, you're sort of in a bind because of the short time frame. You've got 15 days. And if you, you know, seven or eight days into it, if you tell the client, I'm not going to do this, you you put them in a bind, right? So. I only like to tell them that if I can't, you know, if I can't fashion a motion that fits within the rules, and obviously I won't do it. Yeah. But I do sometimes file motions that I that I know have really no chance. Right. But I feel like if I present them and I present them in a way that they hit all of the points of the rule, and I do it in a professional way and in a way that's not, you know accusatory or, you know, which the client sometimes wants. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and that's a really important thing. I mean, there is case law. um, You know, I I keep my research files and I keep these cases, you know, close in a file labeled PCA about things like, you know, cases where lawyers have, you know, called the court names and gotten sanctioned for, you know, saying, how dare you not do this? I was like, this is not the kind of thing that we can do and that we should be doing. Um, you know, we really have to keep it focused on the law and the record and what happened in your case. And if we can, you know, hook it to bigger issues, great, that can be helpful. But it's not ever going to be personal against the judges. Yeah. It's a very emotional time because the clients have lost in the trial court and they think that the appellate court is going to save the day for them. And mm-hmm. then when they don't prevail again and they don't, and they don't get a real good explanation as yeah. to why – You know, it can be very frustrating, and we just have to, Dean, how many times we have to have these talks with our clients about this is the system, this is how it works, it's not perfect, you know. And and that's, by the way, why, you know, when I am the the appeal lawyer all the way through, I I am preconditioning my client to lose (laughs) from the Mm -hmm. beginning. And, um, you know, one thing that I have come around to, to do and to really, like, find that the clients appreciate is you know from the from from the intake I explained that there are you know because I tend to represent appellants that they are on an uphill battle there's a you know there's a lot of things that can happen that we and we don't even know what they all are you know but if this is something that makes sense for you to swing for the fences you know and we think that there's a good good argument to be made here we will do so but we are on an uphill battle so that's like the first conversation um, but even more importantly. After we file a reply brief, and again, definitely after oral argument, if there's oral argument, I make sure we have a really good conversation um, about, you know, I can't tell you what the court is going to do here. All I can do is ask you, do you feel like we've given it our best shot, that we have made the arguments that 
that give you the best chance. And I sort of lock them down on yes, you know, and before we file the reply, if I do that so that we can, you know, if we need to make adjustments or whatever, we can. And then again, an oral argument, I lock them down on yes. And that's even when I ask for a review, if, I, if they're <laughs> going to do a review, because I want them to be at that time where they feel like they've been taken care of. And so when the decision comes out, if it's not favorable, I like to be able to say, you know, I'm really sorry, but remember, we took care of you and you got the process and you got, you know, and we did everything we could to give you that due process. And so, you know, I'm really sorry, this is where we are, but, you know, know that you were taken care of throughout this process. And I think that really helps. Again, I'm dealing a lot with consumers who are not, you know, frequent litigants and so don't really understand the process a lot. It helps a lot for them to feel better about the outcome. I always think about having gone to some CLEs with judges talking and like this, uh, judges on the second district in particular talking about, you know, how they grant oral, you know, used to grant oral argument all the time, even for pro se, because they want those litigants to feel like they've gotten their day in court. And that really stuck with me that, you know, my job is to do my very best to make these people feel like they've gotten their day in court. Um, and I can't control the judges, but I can control what we do to make them feel like they got their day in court. So that's that's a constant conversation, I think, for client management on the appellate side because the you know when you're walking in as an appellate, you're most likely going to lose. That's just the way it works. Yeah, you you know the the way I sort of picture it in my head is when you're an appellant, you're already fighting an uphill battle, right? right? When you lose again for the second time at the appeal, it's sort of like a straight up cliff. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> And there's absolutely. ways up it, but you have to scale it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that definitely is usually the end of the line. And so um, preparing people for that being the end of the line sort of makes it a little bit more, you know, I'm just trying to provide a little mattress for that cliff, <laughs> hopefully, so it's not quite so hard of a hard of a fall, because I know it stinks. It stinks to lose. I don't like losing either. And it's not my house or my life or my, you know, custody issue or whatever it is. Um, but I know how hard it hurts to lose. So um, I try to get them ready for it. I wanted to mention one other resource that I look at, um, and we'll link to your blog post, which I think your blog post is a little bit more client-oriented. Um, no, it is really it? is just its just a general explanation of what is a PCA and, and what okay. does it mean, why does Florida have it, and those kinds of things. Um, it really came about because I was talking to someone out of state, who, and I was mentioning, oh, yeah, I got a PCA. And they're like, what are you talking about? I'm like, oh, nobody knows. People don't know what this is. Let me explain what this is. And it's just turned out to be a good resource both for clients and for non-clients to understand what's going on there. So I also make reference to a lot. The There was a 2003 uh, Stetson Law Review article that Steve Brannick mm-hmm. and um, I'll, I'll butcher this, Sarah Wine Zero. Um, did that talks about confronting a PCA, finding a path around the brick wall, and you know that's it's a little bit uh, dated now, but also has some good information for people that are really trying to run down every last every last bit of it. Yes, that is in my um, my research file on PCAs, as is um, another one that Ezekiel Lugo wrote in 2011, talking about PCAs. Um, in um, and asking for a written opinion. And there's also an older one, 2004, by Arthur England Jr., um, PCAs and the DCAs, asking for a written opinion from a court that has chosen not to write one. Um, and though some of it's a little dated because, you know, it's a little bit of an older case, um, you know, the cases that are cited in some of those articles are really helpful to orient you to, you know, how can you get this, this opinion. 
um, and you know having sort of the uh, the the few cases where where a PCA has resulted in in rehearing and a new decision is helpful, and um, I definitely sort of try to keep track of all those things. Great. Well, Janine, thank you again so much. Uh, this is um, you know this is a good topic because it's one of these things that comes up. There are. Uh, some resources, but I think it's it's good to discuss these things and talk about how we approach them because you know it's inevitable that we have to deal with these issues from time to time. Absolutely, with two thirds of decisions or so being decided this way, it's it's a regular occurrence for most appellate lawyers. For sure. Now, if people want to get a hold of you, what's the best way? Sure, um, I would say email Deneen D I N E E N at ip appeals dot com. Or call me at 813-778-5161. You can follow me on Twitter if you'd like, at Deneen Waslick. Um, and, uh, and, yeah, our website, ip-appeals.com, or the blog, floridaappellate.com, has a lot of good information. Sounds like all sorts of ways to find you on the Internet, <laughs> Absolutely. <right? laughs> well, hey, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for coming back and being a repeat guest. Thanks, Dwayne. I'm honored. Uh, I look forward to the next time. Great. Thank you. Thanks. My thanks to Nadine Wasilek for being my guest again on the Issues on Appeal podcast. Remember to check out her other episode, Episode 5, on social media for lawyers. Remember that podcasts are never legal advice and nothing that I say or my guests say should ever be interpreted as legal advice for a particular situation. That being said, if you're a lawyer that needs the help of an appellate lawyer, I'm happy to try and help. You can contact me at Issues on Appeal on Twitter or at my professional email, D-D-A-I-K-E-R at shoemaker.com. My contact information is always in the show notes that are available in your podcast player or on my website, issuesonappeal.com. And please consider using our sponsor, Commercial Surety Bond Agency, for your client's appellate bond needs. Their contact information is also in the show notes. Please take a moment, add it to your contacts, so that you're ready when a client needs a supersedious bond. Now, some of you probably know this episode was delayed due to some personal issues. While I was actually recording this episode with Deneen, my wife was taken to the hospital after suffering a heart attack. It's been a rocky road, but she is doing well now, and we are hopeful for a full recovery in due time. And I'm really thankful to all of my friends and colleagues who have been so supportive throughout this process. It's it's great to have friends, and I really do appreciate that. I promised a little extra to make up for this podcast being late, so here's some bonus content for you. If you're interested, here's my interview with a friend and local lawyer, Woody Pollock, on his recent experience running an Ironman triathlon in Cork, Ireland. I put the content at the end because it's a little outside the normal realm of what we talk about on Issues on Appeal, but it's about a lawyer facing adversity and doing some amazing things. And honestly, it's just a really good story. I hope you enjoy it. All right, Woody Pollock, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for coming in today. My pleasure. Nice to be here. So you are a uh, lawyer here in Tampa. You're a board-certified intellectual property lawyer over at Schutz & Bowen. That's right. And so is that... Is that all of your practice? How would you describe your practice? I can do one and only one thing, and that's intellectual property. Well, but they say the guy who does one thing does it really well, right? Here's hoping. (laughs) I may be the exception. (laughs) Do you ever handle any appeals, the Federal Circuit or anything? I've never handled an appeal. I have taken some cases uh, that have or had other counsel come in and use their expertise. 
Well, maybe we'll get you get you working on some appeals so you can see, you know, our side of the table. Fantastic. Sounds like a lot of fun. I, go ahead. And you were a software engineer before you were a lawyer. That's right. Second career lawyer, uh, finished college and went to grad school in California and then worked in Silicon Valley as a software engineer for a number of startup companies. Great life, but the, um, the social uh, software engineer is the one that looks at your shoes when he or she's talking to you. And so <laughs> right. I, I sought out to find something where I could engage with human beings. Right. You know, that's another one of my interests is technology. And it's funny, part of how I got into listening to podcasts was listening to technology podcasts and Apple podcasts. And, you know, and some of them get into the the programming stuff. And so I understand a little bit of the lingo. And it's, it is it is a fascinating world. I don't see me really fitting in there either because I'm not a math guy, you know. But, You'd be um, shocked. You'd be fine. Yeah, maybe. Logic I get, but math sometimes uh, not my strength. So this is a little bit of a, a little divergent for the podcast because normally we talk to appellate lawyers or people in the appellate community, but um, actually it's not totally unrelated because I met you because of the podcast. We uh, we were at, a, I think it was a Law and Liberty dinner, and someone introduced me to you, and I know I'd seen you around, and you said, oh, you're the guy with the podcast, and that was the first time that had ever happened to me. So I told a lot of people that story. I'm like, you wouldn't believe I went to a dinner tonight and somebody said, you're the guy with the podcast. And it's happened a couple times since then, but that was the first. And so that was pretty cool. Well, that's awesome. And I'm happy to hear that I was the first. It was a, a now that I've actually listened to the episode that introduced me to you, which was when you interviewed my friend Deneen on social media, I had seen a tweet or a retweet of her talking about this podcast uh, episode coming out. And then a few days later I met you. So it was uh, it was perfect. Yeah, it's pretty funny. And uh, Deneen is actually coming up again soon. She's got a lot of she's got a lot of stuff to talk about. So uh, we talk to her again she's soon, great. for sure. Uh, so at that point, after we met, I started following you on social media, and I caught the story uh, that you were getting ready, you were training for, and getting ready to compete in the Ironman Triathlon in Cork, Ireland. I think it was in June. That's right. And so. Um, I thought that was a fascinating story. I've done it in my past. It's probably been 10 years now since I've done one, but I've had some interest in triathlons. I've never did anything bigger than a sprint triathlon, but it's kind of an interesting, it's definitely an interesting uh, sport. And to think that you were going to travel all the way across the world to do like one of the biggest uh, individual sport uh, challenges is pretty, pretty cool. I agree. How, uh, now, that was not your first Ironman? It, it was not. It was my second uh, full Ironman. When was the first? The first one was uh, October of last year in Louisville, Kentucky. And, uh, and how did that go? How did you, were you happy with your performance? So that one, Louisville, went great. I was extremely happy with my performance. My goal that I set out was uh, to finish with my heart beating, and I accomplished both of those things. And the, uh, the feeling one gets... Crossing that finish line is something that I could never even try to put into words. It is really just an emotional feeling from the top of your head to the bottom of your shoes. It's really just awesome. I bet. Um, to, to back up just a little bit, so clearly one does not go out and do an Ironman uh, willy-nilly. I assume you have a long history of doing doing different distances, doing sprint and Olympic distance and half half Ironmans and that sort of thing? So my story is actually a little bit uh, interesting, at least I think it is. Um, I was a couch potato. Um, I exercised in high school and then hit college and became a professional drinker uh, <laughs> and did very little by way of uh, formal exercise. 
a few years ago, I was at a film festival with my little brother in North Carolina, uh, and uh, he was getting ready to turn 40, and he said, hey, Woody, for my 40th, his 40th birthday, he wanted the two of us to do an Iron Man together. And I had had a couple of beers, and I said, you know what? That is a fantastic idea. We're definitely doing that. <laughs> and because I'm a, a decent lawyer, I took a napkin out and drafted up a little agreement that said, I, Woody, will do an Iron Man with you, Greg. And I gave it to him, and then I forgot about it. A couple months later, November of 2016, my little brother ran his first Ironman in Florida, and I went to cheer for him, and halfway through the running segment, the marathon segment, uh, I was standing on the sideline cheering for him, and he came running up with a, a big grin on his face, and he reached into his pocket, and he handed me the contract I had prepared. <laughs> that then, he'd carried all, the whole uh, distance. He race. carried it for there are ways to get it to you in the middle of the the race, and that's okay. what he did. But uh, the very next day, I started training. I couldn't run uh, a quarter of a mile, but I had set a goal. I set a goal to run a half uh, Ironman the following year to see if I was able to do it, uh, and I did that. And the the thrill of finishing was was a feeling I can't describe, and that that gave me enough motivation to go for the full, which is what I did last year. Wow! So, how many years ago did you start training? November 2016. Wow, that's incredibly fast. Anyone can do it. You can run a 5K. You can do an Ironman. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll talk more about that. Sure. Um, all right. So, what? Um, just so people know, uh, you know, triathlon. I guess everybody knows is is swimming, biking, and running, and there are different distances. Uh, the the Ironman is the biggest. And uh, refresh my memory as to what the distances are for each leg. So, for a full Ironman, the distance is a 2.4 mile swim followed by a 112-mile bike, followed by a marathon, a 26.2-mile run. Wow. And so the first one that you did, uh, that you finished, uh, roughly how long did that take to finish? 13 and a half hours. Wow. That's a full yeah. day. That's a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a busy day. But you get to eat so much. <laughs> you can eat as many calories as you want. I bet. And what made you decide on cork uh, for number two? Because it was the first time they were doing it, I had never been to Ireland, uh, and it seemed like uh, an exciting opportunity. I, I find that uh, for races I register for, uh, if there's a good motivator for the race, then it's easier to train for it, and the excitement of going to Ireland uh, satisfied all that. Because it really ups the level of difficulty, right, to, to go across the pond. I mean, you have to be sure that you've got everything that you need you have to get your bike over there all that sort of thing i mean is it uh is it is it harder is it harder it adds a logistical wrinkle um but i don't know that it's harder it's just more things to plan more planning and think about mm-hmm. and so when did you when did you decide cork cork is what i want to do how long how long before you went so i finished louisville and then I think they announced Cork maybe a month later. And I think within a day or two of that announcement, my little brother and I both registered for it and set that as our next target. So I was going to ask you when you started training, but basically it's been sort of continuous, right? You, you trained for Louisville, and then you, did you just kind of roll right into this, or did you? So like anything, you finish, and then you get, like, after a trial, you might relax for a couple of weeks. Right. Training is no different. I finished Louisville. There was a, a, a thrill and an excitement that hit a lull and relaxed. And then I had another um, objective on the horizon, which was Ireland. So got back into 
kind of a pseudo level of training and then increased my training. So now when you're, when you're training for the Ironman, I assume you have a, have a schedule that you follow? So I'm no, uh, most people do. And I should, it's, uh, I'd probably be a lot better if I did that. I'm more of an ad hoc. Um, well, let me get up and do whatever. I haven't, I haven't run in a couple of days. Let me go for a run or I need to go do a long bike ride over the weekend. So that kind of is, is a goal, but I don't, a lot of people, the, the, the people that do this sport better follow plans. And if I, uh, could mentally commit to getting better at it, then I would find <laughs> a plan and follow such a plan. Yeah. But is it, uh, do you have a, have a th- idea as to how many hours a week you train? Um, I, I, again, I'm not like hard cut on that. As I get closer to a big race, I want to be pushing 20 to 30 hours of training a week, but I don't think of it that way. It's more, I break things down more to, as I approach the weekend, um, I need to be in a position to do long workouts for the weekend, whether that's, you know, a six hour bike ride or a, a three or four hour run or both as, you know, if a race is three weeks away, I want to be in a, I want to be in a fitness condition where I could do that. And so it's kind of backtracking if I'm a month out from that and feeling like a two hour run is going to be a lot of work then I need to up my training so that I can be ready to do a three hour run right and a half weeks later. Yeah. And do you, now it's interesting, you're measuring the running in, in time as opposed to mileage. Is it, do, you, do you track miles or do you worry about duration? Um, I focus on duration. Um, uh, my, the, the key metrics I use are duration and intensity, intensity measured by power output, whether that's my running power output or my, my biking power output. The, the, the neat thing about this sport being an engineer, which means I'm also a nerd, is it's all about kind of metrics and gathering data using various tools and then figuring out how that data impacts whatever. And so right now I'm experimenting with a new training philosophy of a low-intensity workout but lots of volume. And so working out where your power output might be lower and your heart rate might stay lower, but theoretically, or at least the science suggests, that... Um, you can do it for a longer period of time. And do you use any technology being a little geeky in this? You wear an Apple watch or, or something like that to, to track your activities. I assume you must have a bike computer that man that measures all that sort of thing. Uh, I, I have a fair amount of technology involved. <laughs> I, the, the nerdiest way I can describe it is that my bike pedals have Bluetooth, right? <laughs> because my bike pedals each gather power inputs. They, they tell me like, how much wattage my left foot is doing versus how much wattage my right foot is doing. And that then talks to my, I wear a Garmin watch. It talks to my watch. And then there's a, a Garmin head unit on my bike. It talks to that as well so that you can distract yourself by looking at numbers while you're working out for long periods of time. Right. And I bet you have uh, huge amounts of data, right? About Lots your training and your progress and all that. Compare it. <laughs> my heart rate spiked from this when I was doing this. It's really a nerd's uh, paradise. And is it helpful or is it interesting? Or is it both? Uh, it's definitely helpful, and it's certainly interesting. So it's both. It's helpful because um, from a training system, it, to get back to your mileage uh, question, mileage is less uh, um, intimidating than knowing kind of I, I have a decent sense of what intensity my body can take for what period of time. And so if I'm doing a long race, I know my body needs to be in a position to do a decent to high level of intensity for a good amount of time. If I'm doing a shorter race, I 
I can kind of adjust the, 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 the dials on my own performance and know what I'm going to get out of it, regardless of whether it's, you know, it's a 100-mile bike or a 50-mile bike. And when you're training or when, you know, when you're getting ready for these things, do you also do 5Ks and 10Ks and half marathons, organized races and that kind of stuff too? I try and register for as many of those as possible uh, because races are great motivators. Mm-hmm. They, uh, they keep you accountable, right? You have a deadline and you have to be ready and you have to go. It's exactly that. And then the longer races, um, your half marathons and your marathons, you've got support. And so it's not uncommon for me to go out on a Saturday morning and run 16 miles. And I can do that in my neighborhood, and that's really boring. Uh, and I have to carry a lot of water because we live in an area where it is very uncomfortable to run in, particularly this time of year. Mm-hmm. If you register for a race, you got a lot of people out there that are cheering you on, which hand helps in your with water. adrenaline. And people <laughs> handing you water. And, oh, that is magic. That is nice. So when it came time to go, who, who went with you uh, to Cork? So um, I have a great sport crew in my family. Uh, I have three children, two of my children and my wife and my mom. Uh, went over to Ireland with me, and then my little brother went over uh, so that he and I could race together. Right, so he raced too. He did, yeah. Yeah, great. And um, I, I know I saw on Facebook that you, you shipped your bike over, right? Was that uh, was that a hassle? Did you have to disassemble it to ship it over, or how does that work? Uh, no, there's a company that does all the, the work for you. Um, nice. This was my first overseas one, and so I learned afterwards that they put it on a boat and ship it over there that way and reassemble it. It had a little damage on the way back, but all in all, a very seamless uh, operation. Much better. You don't want to ride 112 miles on somebody else's bike, right? I mean, So I actually thought about that. I didn't realize you know. that was an option, and in hindsight, I probably would have rented a bike yeah. just because from a cost standpoint, it would have been about the same. Uh, getting your bike there and back is pretty expensive, uh, and if I used a rental bike, uh, I could uh, experiment with, somebody else's sweet piece of equipment now how early how far in advance of the race did you get to ireland Uh, i got there a week uh, just about a little bit more than a week before it began Um, i wanted to be able to uh, traveling is tiring Mm -hmm. uh, and i wanted a couple of days to adjust to the time change and adjust to the traveling and did you do some training over there to acclimate i couldn't ride my bike because my bike was with the shipping company but i did uh some runs and uh, a, a swim in the water there. The, the swim that was supposed to happen was going to be in 54-degree water, which is, uh, wow. that's chilly. <laughs> yeah, I suppose the water is never warm in Ireland, right? I mean, if it's 54 in June. <laughs> it's never warm. And it's a very cold swim. You know, I remember being in Florida and having done some some small triathlons here. There's sometimes an issue as to whether the water is cold enough to be wetsuit legal, right? And it's, sometimes it's like a, uh, just before the start, the officials decide if you can wear a wetsuit. Uh, I guess there was no question you were going to be able to wear a wetsuit in Ireland. <laughs> so that, if it's below 76, it's wetsuit legal. This was my first race where uh, it was wetsuit required. I've never... Oh, really? That, that's, I've never that heard that term. It, neither had I. <laughs> yeah, that means it's serious. That means it's going to be cold. Huh. And how, how... Is it like a three millimeter wetsuit or how, how thick are the wetsuits? Yeah. yeah. But that one you could also wear... I wore a hood. Um, I put some earwax... Uh, not earwax. Some, some earplugs in my... My ears and some booties. You're not allowed to wear. You're not allowed to wear gloves. So your hands and your face have to be no exposed. webbed fingers. Right? No web, that's why. Yeah, no cheating. Dang it. Nice. So uh, I've I've been to 
the half Iron Man that they do out on Clearwater Beach, the Foster. It used to be Foster Grant seventy point three. Maybe okay. it may have changed right. sponsors by then. So I know I've seen the transition areas and stuff. I know it's it's a it's a big setup. So I'm assuming you get in the day before, right, to set up your your gear and your transition areas and get everything ready to go. So with an Ironman branded event uh, of that distance, a full Ironman event, you're required to check your bike in the day before uh, your bike and your transition equipment has to be with them by 5 o'clock the day before the race begins and you're not allowed to touch it afterwards. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Except for the following morning, you're allowed to see it and put some air in your tires. And so what was the weather like that day before when you were there checking in? So I was in Ireland for 11 days for this trip, and we had 10 days that the weather was 66 degrees and sunny with no breeze, and one day where it was 50 degrees with hail and 25-mile-an-hour winds and nonstop rain, and that one day was raced. <laughs> so check-in was beautiful. Everything was great. <laughs> and did you know at that point, did everybody know that weather was going to be an issue the next day based on, based on forecast? So what we knew is, um, like, uh, the USA Triathlon Association and then its corresponding equivalent in Ireland have these uh, spreadsheets that say if the air temperature is going to be X and the water temperature is going to be Y – uh, you have to adjust your swim accordingly. As it gets colder and windier, you have to reduce the swim because it becomes more dangerous for the athletes, Safety, harder sure. for the life, life, lifeguard people. And so the day before the race, uh, the weather was nice, and we have a mandatory race briefing from the race director, uh, and he announced, we're going to make a change to the swim course, um, but we can't tell you what, and we won't be able to tell you what until 5, uh, I think it was 5 o'clock the next morning, race morning. And so we all knew the race was going to get shortened. We just didn't know how. And uh, did you get much sleep that night? So I slept like a baby that night. The, the Ireland summer, the sun goes down late, and so it's bright as day at 10 o'clock at night. And right. I thought that that was going to be concerning. And I thought that nerves were going to be concerning. And I didn't have any of those issues. I don't know why. Uh, before Louisville which was my first and the thing I'd kind of set my sights on for a 20-month period, I, was, I had all the anxiety you would expect to have the night before and you know, up at 2.30 in the morning, twiddling my thumbs, ready to, okay, let's do this. Let's go, yeah. But for Ireland, uh, we had set to start heading down to transition. The place we stayed was a mile or so from the swim start, which is also where transition was. We set to head out around 5 a.m. about the time they were going to make the announcement uh, for the race modifications. Uh, and I got up at 4, feeling well-rested and didn't need an alarm for that and was ready to go. That's nice that you could be so close. A mile away is pretty nice. I'm, the place must have been full of triathletes, right? We had found a house that we had rented. Um, oh. And so our house, it was a two-person house, and the other people were also there for the race. That whole town, excuse me, was just full of an influx of the people that come to do one of these events. Oh, I bet. Yeah. And so how early do you show up for the race on race day? So we set our goal of five to start walking down there. We probably didn't really start until five fifteen, five thirty, 530. Uh, and to walk to the swim start slash transition area was along the coast. Uh, the town that the race is in is actually a town called Y'all, Y-O-U-G-H-A-L. Um, hmm. I thought ironic for a Florida guy that right. y'all. Um, I thought the omens were all lining up to make this the perfect race for me. Yeah. Uh, not so much, but as we're walking, uh, it's raining and it's windy and it's very cold. And there are 
there are, you know, it's a good surf. There's four to six foot waves in where the swim area should be. And I can tell that there are no swim buoys out there. And so my sense is a pretty clear sense that we're not going to be doing a swim that morning. Right. And when do you find out for sure? So we get there. Um, we're all in our wetsuits. Uh, and then they finally announce, I think the race was supposed to start at 630. And I think at, or maybe 634, something like that. And probably around 615, they make an announcement, uh, swim's canceled. Um, all the athletes need to be in the transition area, standing next to their bikes in their swim gear, and wait to be called by their groupings of race numbers to go into the transition tent to change into their biking gear. Mm-hmm. And so we end up standing there for it's it's a good hour, hour and twenty minutes in the rain. Um, How hard is it raining at this point? It's it's an Irish rain. Yeah, it's they call it. The way the Irish describe it is, ooh, it keeps getting softer, which as a Floridian, I'm like, that should mean it's getting better. That's their way of saying it's getting worse. Yeah. Um, and so uh, I'm standing around with the guys who are next to me, and they're all Irishmen. Um, am I allowed to use near foul language in this? Sure. Okay. And so we're all speaking with one another and asking where everyone is from, and they're all from Ireland and chatting. And they look to me, oh, I'm from Florida in the States. And they turn to me and, oh, you're fucked. <laughs> Nice. That'll Good be confidence weird. builder there, right? They were so totally right. <laughs> so, you know, normally when you when you start with a swim, they do a wave start, right? And everybody sort of gets spread out a little bit by function of the of the swim and people get in the transition area and grab their bike. And how do they start a race when there's no swim? How does it start? Yeah, so this uh they took groups of numbers into the tent to get changed, and then everybody gets at their biking gear and then goes and back goes back and stands with their bikes and waits longer, another hour and a half, I think it was, wow. as they slowly essentially time trial start us in groups of two spaced out by 20 seconds. They just let us go. And so you wait an hour and a half in that line with your bike to get to the front of it, and then they have a stopwatch and they say go. And your time starts when you're, everybody wears a chip on their leg. Your chip crosses the mat and you're off. And so did you start with a, a bunch of people at the same time? Oh, yeah. I was in the middle of the pack or probably towards the end of the line, just based eh, – I'd, I'd probably say about 70% of the people had started in front of me and 30% of the people were behind me. So at this point, still raining? Raining and the rain is intensifying. Um, the Irish roads uh, are very narrow and not paved very well uh, and very slick. Mm. And there is a lot of hills. And so – there were a lot of um, crashes, a lot of people um, pulling out for hypothermia, uh, and a lot of um, difficulty. Um, when you go, a normal advantage when you bike is you bike up a hill. That's a lot of work, but then you get to go down a hill, and theoretically, that's a break. Uh, for the for this race on these roads, that isn't how it worked because the downhills uh, all ended with hard turns mm-hmm. and so you couldn't come down a hill with a lot of speed and it's hard to take speed off your bike when it's really wet because the brakes don't work so good and so just about everyone is riding their brakes really hard doing their best to avoid being the guy or girl who's crashed at the bottom of the hill yeah. and there was a fair number of of people that were less than successful at that well and for people who are listening who don't aren't serious bikers you know road bikes and tri, tri bikes which are like versions of road bikes they're not necessarily the best thing in wet, 
you know, that the, the tires are pretty slick. They're designed not to have a lot of rolling resistance so that you can ride them 112 miles. But that's not real good in wet and curves and wet you curves. Have, you have hit the nail <laughs> on the head. They are not designed to stop quickly. No, no. They're designed to keep going and go fast. <laughs> to give, That's exactly right. And so a race where you have to stop makes it a, a special kind of challenge. <laughs> I bet. So... So I want to ask you how, how that went, but as you're rolling across the start line, I mean, what, what, what's your feeling at that point? I mean, what's your, what's your confidence level as, as the race is starting? Are you, are you, you concerned about the weather? Is it? So the, the, my favorite expression from getting into the sport is the whole purpose or one of the main purposes of the sport is finding comfort in discomfort. And so I'm, I'm less bothered by getting into cold bodies of water. I'm less bothered by spending eight hours in the rain working out. Um, th- those kind of things you can't control. You can't control what's outside of your box. You just got to control whatever the things are that you can control. When the bike starts, as I get to the start line, and my little brother and I are next to each other, super excited. I I love cycling. I love um, I love exploring new places. I love the outdoors. I love seeing the countryside. And the idea of biking around um, Ireland uh, for fun yeah. with people supporting the, the community. This is the first time they've hosted such a race. They're all excited. The, the, you bike through these little towns and everybody's out on the street cheering. The thrill of that is um, is got my heart beating and my adrenaline pumping. And I am just excited. I'm not the kind of guy that races for speed. I don't care how fast I did it. Um, I'm, and so I'm not nervous that I'm going to make a cutoff, not make a cutoff, going to win, not win. I'm just really, I've been waiting for a long time. Everyone's shivering or everybody's lips are blue and teeth are chattering. And I'm just excited to start biking around the countryside of Ireland. That, that to me is, is cool. Yeah. Now is this, is this course, is it like an out and back? Is it a loop? Is are there multiple laps or is it just a big loop around the countryside? This is a two loop course, um, that has, um, they call it rolling hills, but it has two primary challenges, um, both towards the end of the loop. So it's a 56-mile loop. Probably around mile 48, there is a long, steady, I'd say, maybe like a three-mile, 14-degree climb that they don't warn you about. That one's called Murphy's Hill. That wasn't in any of the brochures. <laughs> Murphy sounds about right. <laughs> it's, and I think it's because the guy Murphy owned the farm that that hill was next to. Yeah. Uh, and somebody wrote in chalk on the street, welcome to Murphy's Hill. And as I was struggling uh, using foul language climbing up it, uh, Murphy's name committed to my memory. <laughs> then you get down that uh, and you come back into the town to begin your second loop. And there is a hill that they do warn you about called Windmill Hill. That's right smack in the middle of Y'all, the town. Everyone from Y'all is standing on the street. It looks like a Tour de France event. Uh, it's a 22-degree climb. It's only 400 meters, but it is, it is 22 degrees if you're not a, a cyclist. That's, that's an intense climb. That's, yeah, that's up out of the saddle climbing climb, right? I it's mean, up that's... out of the saddle. It's hop off the bike and walk. It's crisscross back and <laughs> forth. It's... It's intense, but the, but the environment there with the fans, like literally an inch from you, screaming in your ear, yelling, go Woody, because your name is on your number. It's it's a weird, and it, you're exhausted because you biked 50-some-odd miles the first loop and 100-some-odd miles the second loop in the cold and rain. But then you've got these locals just super excited to see some weirdo who's not at the front of the pack uh, and want to help that person get up the hill. It's really It's really thrilling. 
Oh, that does sound cool. You know, I, I, I love to watch the Tour de France, and I don't know many people who do. I don't know. <laughs> For whatever reason, I record it and watch it, and uh, I, can, I can picture what you're saying. It does feel like sort of living a moment from the tour with uh, people lining the roads it and absolutely steep has climbs, that feeling, yeah. and that's, that's, that's very cool. I yeah. can see that would be, you know, motivating at a time when you need motivation. It's motivating at a time you need motivation. I'm not going to lie. Uh, I was also... Um, I was in a low part right there. It was a lot of struggle, and I, 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 to do again, I would have appreciated it more than I did yeah. at the, in the moment. <laughs> right. <laughs> in hindsight, it's great. So, um, so I guess I don't know. Ultimately, did did you did you complete the entire bike loop? I did complete the bike. So I finish. Uh, about now how long so people have an idea how long you were suffering at this how long was the how long is 112 miles through the irish countryside take well i didn't go fast and that was my problem Uh, i got into transition uh to change for the run and was informed that you get eight hours and 20 minutes to finish the bike and it took me eight hours and 35 minutes so i was not permitted to go out onto the run course and so that is a um that is a form of digest- as high as the high is that I received when I finished Louisville. Uh, that's a pretty low low. That's uh, setting your sights on a goal and then failing, and that's that's a dark place to be, particularly when you're cold and wet. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't describe that as failing, but I, I, I understand what you're saying, and I, I guess did did you realize that you were on the cusp of the cutoff as you were as you were finishing the bike? So part of the problem, uh, I knew it was in play, but we didn't know exactly what the cutoff was because they had canceled the swim. Mm, right. Part one. Part two, Mike Riley, who is the voice of Iron Man, he's the guy who is became famous for being at Iron Man finish lines and announcing, hey, you are an Iron Man. They brought him to announce this race because it was the first time they were doing the race. And so he was doing the announcements at the beginning when we're all standing in the rain, uh, try, and he was announcing the time cutoffs, but he was having trouble converting between 12-hour and 24-hour. And so he kept <laughs> announcing times, and the Irish people would all announce that he had made a mistake. And so nobody – we didn't really know what the cutoff time was. Knew it was not play, but I didn't know I was out. Right. So had you actually – come in a transition were you changing into your running gear when you found out or had you changed already the way it worked is the race official was set up at the front of the transition tent and you stepped into the transition tent and he looked at the number on your helmet and pulled up your official time and then let you know uh that um you were acceptable or not acceptable and i was in the not acceptable and then probably 15 or 20 minutes after i came in they just shut the tent uh because by then everybody everybody who had qualified yeah Mm. So there were still a number of people behind you on the bike course, I assume. There were. So 2,500 people registered uh, for the event uh, and entered the event, and uh, I think 11 or 1,200 of us didn't finish, so I wasn't alone in struggling. I don't know that that gives me much comfort, but (laughs) there were a bunch of us in the tent dealing with either – there were two camps, those people who were just really thankful to be dry and warm and standing next to a heater, and those people who were, um, you know, visibly upset that – you know, you set your goals on something and you come up a little bit short. Now, I, I don't know because I don't follow it up, but that – so you're saying roughly a little over half of the people who started finished? Uh, that's correct. And is that unusually low for an Ironman event? It sounds that, like it. That's pretty low. Yeah. That's, uh, 
I think this course, so it's a new course for the organization. I think it's probably one of their tougher courses. It will attract a lot of uh, a lot of people in the sport because of that windmill hill. It's a, an exciting challenge, uh, and they happen to get it on a day that was very Irish weather-wise, and so there's a mystique around the race now. But that's that's a pretty low finish percentage. Sure. What do you think? Would you do it again? Would you try the same race again? Oh, absolutely, in a heartbeat. Are you planning on it already? Uh, I am not currently registered for Ironman <laughs> Ireland. <laughs> but I, who doesn't want to conquer the mountain that they failed to conquer the first time? Right. Now, it's interesting, though. You know, So I didn't know uh, exactly how this story ended. I knew that, that you didn't finish the race, and which is why I thought it would be interesting because you're, you're such a competitor. Uh, I knew there would be a good story behind that. And, uh, you know... Boy, missing the cutoff is tough because you never quit. <laughs> you never quit the race. You just didn't quite make that cutoff. I didn't and crash. I didn't get sick. I yeah. That's some days that's, just aren't your days, Dwayne. That is heartbreaking. But you know what, what? What an experience. I mean, to undertake something like this at all, and then to do it across the world, and uh, to do it in in the most adverse conditions that they would probably even run the race in is, is pretty amazing. I mean, congratulations to you. That's a, a fantastic accomplishment, no matter whether you were 15 seconds faster or not. Well, thank you. <laughs> do you, do you feel confident that had you, had you been a little bit faster, had you made the, had you made the cutoff, were you feeling good for the run? You think you were, were okay for that? Oh, without a question. My, my normal uh, mental philosophy uh, during the race, my, when I'm swimming, is I'm thinking, okay, this will be done soon. Looking forward to hopping on the bike. And then I get on the bike, and I spend the first half of the bike just kind of cruising. And then the second half, I start thinking, oh, we're going to have to start running. i got to get uh, – not, running's not my favorite activity in the world, and so there's a little bit of dread. In this race uh, on the bike, I spend a lot of time thinking, I cannot wait to start running just so I can finally relax because – well, I can imagine running in the rain is a lot easier than biking in the rain. Yeah. So yeah, it probably would have been a relief to not feel like you were going to slide off the road at any moment. That, it would have been nice. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I had it in me. I would have, uh, it wouldn't have been my fastest uh, marathon, but like I say, I don't care about time. It would have been nice to cross that finish line and hear Mike Riley do his thing, but it wasn't meant to be that day. Not that day. And, you know, I'm trying to think whether there was anything I was going to ask you if there's anything you'd do differently, but I'm not sure. I mean, is there, aside from uh, a better weather day, is there anything you could have done differently on this day? Only thing I could have done was train harder to get myself in better condition to bike faster. To yeah. I'm, a, I'm a Florida boy, and so biking hills is hard. This was 7,000 feet of elevation gain, and you just had to, had to do more intense bike workouts that I didn't do. I guess, but it's not only that; it's bike handling too, right? I mean, even even at a given level of fitness, like you like you say, if you're you know, there's a certain amount of bike handling skills, and 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 even though you may have been able to go faster physically, you were limited by the conditions. So that I, I accept that we can always say, well, I could have trained harder, but you know, there were other limitations too that were keeping Fair you point. from from doing as well as you could have done for sure fair point i i do believe that if it had been a decent weather day I, it would have been a different result so is there is it what is next for you is there is there another big event besides that or you you have anything planned yet yep i'm uh what's interesting about the way that uh, i adopted this sport is now uh by essentially following my little brother and doing it with him my 
sister and her husband have registered to do their first half Ironman, which is Wilmington, North Carolina, the first half that I did. And I am doing that with them in October to kind of support them. And so it'll be a homecoming of sorts for me to do the first bigger race that I did to do it again. So I'm kind of excited for that. Uh, I totally forgot to ask you how your brother did in the race. We were together. Oh, you were together. Okay. So he... We don't race against each other. We race with each other. It's actually one of the best parts about this. We get to hang out. Oh, that's very cool. So we got deprived the time to hang out and uh, crack jokes for a few hours while we ran the marathon. But right. We'll find another race for that. <laughs> well, that's good. Well, so to, to bring this back around, is there anything in your experience that you felt would make you a better lawyer? Well, that's a really good question. Um, well, you know, not everything goes the way we intend it to go in our practices, whether advocating on behalf of a client or dealing with some other issue. And so it's, uh, I guess what I did learn from it is be prepared for things to not go the way you intend it and uh, be smart enough and strong enough to learn from whatever shortcomings you had and see if you can't apply those teachings to when you try the next time. Right, because sometimes instead of bad rain, we get bad rulings or... Bad facts. <laughs> Sometimes right. it works out that way. Or, or clients that want to move things in a way you don't want to move them. So that just can make things challenging. Oh, man. Woody, thanks so much for your time today. It was, uh, it's a great story. I'm excited to uh, bring it to the audience and, and let everybody be a little bit inspired by, by what you did. And uh, I'm sure maybe the next time you, you finish one, maybe we'll talk about it. Uh, next time you race one, we'll talk about it again. I'd like to, I'd like to hear the whole story, right? Uh, how you, uh, successfully navigate the next one, but Hey, best of luck to you. Um, you know, we are all much more than lawyers and we all do some amazing things in our lives. And sometimes it's cool to talk about that too. Well, th- but, thanks for having me. This was great. A lot of fun. Thanks a lot. Woody. I appreciate it. Thanks Dwayne. Thanks to Woody Pollock for coming on the show and telling his story. Uh, sorry, Woody, that I had to stick you at the end. Uh, if you come back and we talk about some intellectual property appeals, I, I promise I'll put you on the front end. But thanks for telling your story. I've got another great show coming up in two weeks. And as always, thank you for considering this week's Issues on Appeal. <laughs> <laughs>